Welcome to Antelope Road Christian Fellowship. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit myarcf.com. All right. So if you've been with us the last week or two, you know that uh, we're starting a series today called Victory. If you saw the World War II British propaganda out in the foyer, you know we're starting a series called Victory. Do we have the... There we go. So, I'm going to retell the story in case we weren't there or in case we forgot. We're going to talk about victory. You're laughing because I'm 36 years old. You're like, oh, wow, Greg. Okay. In May 1940... Don't tell Americans this who've grown up with the, our own written history books. In May 1940, the world had no idea who was going to win World War II. It gets talked about today as if it's a foregone conclusion. Well, Uncle Sam's going to come in there and he's going to take care of it. Uncle Sam was minding his own business. Uncle Sam was, hey, that's the Europeans, that's their war. Okay? And no one was feeling it like Winston Churchill and the British Parliament. That as it relates to major powers before Hitler launched an invasion of the Soviet Union, Britain stood alone on planet Earth against Hitler. It's very hard for us as Americans to fully emotionally grasp the aloneness, to grasp we viewed France as a military equal and but they're about to fall because no one's ever taken all of their tanks and sent 250 of them together as a division to mow down infantry. Large empires are dropping like flies. And the leaders of Britain have to decide something really important. Are we going to respond to Hitler's quiet overtures? Hey, do you guys want peace? Hitler was a dummy, but he was no dummy. He knew the amount of resources it was going to take to invade an island. And there were overtures of peace made, and the leaders had to decide, are we going to fight to the bitter end, or are we going to take some sneaky backdoor deal, backroom deal, where the wealthiest and most powerful among us probably get a villa somewhere, but we sell out our people? What's it going to be? We're going to be using this story as a little bit of a backdrop for our series the next 10 weeks. Every single week, we're going to be talking about something entirely new, entirely different. But the common thread is this. The death of Jesus Christ on his cross on Good Friday, his resurrection on Sunday morning, purchased and achieved victory over big things. And then, if that wasn't good enough, he turned around and offered all of that victory to you and to me, to anybody who would believe. You want my blood to be sufficient to wash away your sin? Fine, it's yours. You want resurrection? Awesome, I led the way. It's yours. It would be incredibly arrogant and, and you know, the the spirit of the age, our secular humanist ideas do this all the time. You gotta pick yourself up by the bootstraps. You have to find victory. You gotta get another self-help book. You gotta get in a group. You gotta do this. And some of that can be good. 
But what are you gonna do when you're toe-to-toe with death? You're thrown into the octagon, you have those really thin MMA gloves, the cameras are going, the crowd's screaming, it's you, and you look across the way and you're like, oh, that's death. Anybody here ever defeated death? Anybody? No? Right? Because you can talk a big game as you're climbing the corporate ladder. You can talk a big game in your parenting and take that fake little picture with your kids, Instagram, and it looks like you're winning. And you can win, and you can win, and you can win, and you can win until somebody puts death in the octagon versus you, and you go, oops. That's a little bit bigger than anything I have faced before. And we try to cheat it. We go to yoga every morning and slip some kale into that smoothie like we're going to cheat death. Nope. And that might be a good idea, but you're going to die. Some of us allow pigs to turn kale into bacon for us, and we live happier. But, <laughs> but we're going to die. I know you're so excited you came to church this morning. You're all going to die. <laughs> right? We don't even ask the question anymore about death and taxes, Right? They're supposed to be the only universals. I told you it'd be one of mine. (laughs) Today, we're going to talk about victory over death, something you could not have achieved if you tried, something I could not achieve if I tried. So the series for the next 10 weeks is called Victory Today, Victory Over Death. I know that sounds fantastical, but it's true. So you ready? If you need a Bible, throw a hand up, and we've got some volunteers that are gonna hand out this black hardback that we've got. I want everybody to have a copy of the Word of God in their hands. Awesome, right over here. And we're gonna go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Oh, you guys got the page number for me. Sound booth is rocking it today. Page 959 in the hardback that we're passing out. If you know your way around the Bible, or if you've got a digital Bible, just type in 1 Corinthians 15. I will turn there as well. I don't normally preach an entire chapter, but Paul keeps going with one thought. So believe, even though this is going to be longer, he's staying on one idea the entire time. There's a pastor almost 2,000 years ago writing to a church in Greece. Let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you stand firm in it. It is the good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you, unless, of course, you believed something that was never true in the first place. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the Scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the Scripture said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive even though some have died. Now, can we admit that's David Blaine territory? Okay, older crowd. David Copperfield territory? Oh, wait, older crowd. Houdini territory? Right? If you're going to say you were raised from the dead, that's a claim, but if 500 people said they saw you, that's different, right? That's different. Okay, verse 7. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. 
For I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. If you're new to church, this guy was a religious Jew, a Jewish religious terrorist who killed Christians for fun. Like, check it out. It's in the book. Anyway, and then he got, became a Christian, so that was awkward. Okay. But whatever I am now, it is all because God poured out his special favor on me and not without results. For I have worked harder than any of the other apostles. Yet it was not I, but God who was working through me by his grace. So it makes no difference whether I preach or they preach. For we all preach the same message you have already believed. Is it okay if we don't do the keys? Um, but But tell me this. Since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying that there will be no resurrection of the dead? So he's getting down into a theological dispute that some of them are talking about, okay? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. And we apostles would all be lying about God. For we have said that God raised Christ from the grave, but that that. But that can't be true if there's no resurrection of the dead. And if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you're still guilty of your sins. You hear how he's going kind of like a logical, like if one domino falls, the next domino falls, okay? You're still guilty before God if there's no resurrection. So please don't say there's no, no resurrection. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. Let me translate that. If Christians believe something and that belief dies along with them because it was all a lie, we're the biggest joke in all of humanity. That's one of their own pastors saying that. I agree. This is insane if it's not true. It's insane if it's not true. Those are the only two options. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, he's referring to Adam, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. But there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. After that, the end will come when he will turn the kingdom over to God the Father, having destroyed every ruler and authority and power. Was that a big claim? Oh my goodness. Every, like, we'll get into our conspiracy theories about a one world government in Europe or, oh, China's building a nuclear arsenal or, oh, this or, oh, that. And Jesus comes along, squish, For Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies beneath his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For the scriptures say, God has put all things under his authority. Of course, when it says all things are under his authority, that does not include God himself who gave Christ his authority. Verse 28. Then when all things are under his authority, the son will put himself under under God's authority so that God who gave his son authority over all things will be utterly supreme over everything everywhere. Superlative much? So what's God in charge of at the end of everything? Oh my goodness. Wow. If the dead will not be raised, what point is there? This is where it gets crazy. 
if you are new to the Bible. What point is there in people being baptized for those who are dead? Why do it unless the dead will someday rise again? So whether you've got a background in church or not, let me point something out to you. The first rule of interpreting an entire book is to let the book interpret the book. You read it front to back. You read all of it. You don't just rip out one little snippet. So scholars have spent almost 2,000 years now going, wait, is he teaching baptism of the dead? What's going on? First of all, he's not commanding it. He's referring to a, a practice in this church and nowhere else in scripture talks about it or commands it. So this is one where you have to go, there's just something there that we don't understand and you move on. Because Christians for 2,000 years have decided, no, we're not gonna be baptized for our dead relative. Okay, verse 30. And why should we ourselves risk our lives hour by hour? For I swear, dear brothers and sisters, that I face death daily. This is as certain as my pride in what Christ Jesus our Lord has done for you. And what value was there in fighting wild beasts, those people of Ephesus, if there will, will be no resurrection from the dead? He's talking about Christian martyrdom. And if there is no resurrection, let's feast and drink, for tomorrow we die. Don't be fooled by those who say such things, for bad company corrupts good character. Think carefully about what is right and stop sinning, for to your shame I say that some of you don't know God at all. Wow, everybody loves it when Pastor Paul comes into town and preaches, don't we? But someone may ask, how will the dead be raised? What kind of body will they have? That is getting a really specific question, right? Well, he's got a really specific answer. This is pretty fascinating. What a foolish question. Oh, thanks, Pastor Paul. When you put a seed into the ground, now follow this illustration. This is helpful. When you put a seed into the ground, it doesn't grow into a plant unless it dies first. Holy cow. That was a big deal. You want to talk about resurrection? We've got to talk about death happening first to get on to better things. You and I are so tempted to think of death as being the end. He's going, actually, a seed dies first. Like, that's the first step. And what you put in the ground is not the plant that will grow, but only a bare seed of wheat or whatever you're planting. Then God gives it the new body he wants it to have. A different plant grows from each kind of seed. Similarly, there are different kinds of flesh, one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are also bodies in the heavens and bodies on the earth. The glory of the heavenly bodies is different from the glory of the earthly bodies. The sun has one kind of glory, while the moon and stars have another kind. And even the stars differ from each other in their glory. It is the same way with the resurrection of the dead. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised in life forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in glory. They are buried in weakness, but they will be raised in strength. They are buried as natural human bodies, but they will be raised as spiritual bodies. For just as there are natural bodies, there are also spiritual bodies. If you're new to church, you might not know this one. This is pretty epic. When Jesus came back from the dead, he wanted to go see his disciples. They're locked in a room, terrified. Oh, the Jewish religious elite crucified our Messiah. They're gonna come for us. So they're in a locked room and he walks through a wall and says, hi. And before you get too despondent over that, wait, a resurrected body is just like, fundamentally different. That walking through walls is cool, but there are things about this earthly life I really enjoy. He also asked for some breakfast, so apparently food is still a thing. Hey. So if you've been wondering, is there Chick-fil-A in the life beyond? We know the answer. Verse 45, and many a happy cow. The scriptures tell us, the first man, Adam, became a living person, but the last Adam, that is Christ, is a life-giving spirit. What comes first is the natural body, then the spiritual body comes later. 
Adam, the first man, was made from the dust of the earth, while Christ, the second man, came from heaven. Earthly people are like the earthly man, and heavenly people are like the heavenly man. Just as we are now like the earthly man, we will someday be like the heavenly man. What I'm saying, dear brothers and sisters, is that our physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Did you hear that? You have to die to move on to the next phase. This has to happen. This physical body is under the curse of sin, the world that is broken and stained and yearning for redemption, Romans. These dying bodies cannot inherit what will last forever. Verse 51, but let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. And we who are living will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Then, when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, the scripture will be fulfilled. Are you ready? These are all, many of them are devout Jews. Some of them are Gentiles who've converted to Christianity. And he's going hundreds of years in the past. Hey, the Bible already told us, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Death, where's your sting? That's a taunt. Anybody talk smack to the Grim Reaper? Come on, son. I've been working on my left hook. No, you don't talk smack to the Grim Reaper. Neither do I. God does. God does. For sin is the sting. This is an important image. When you get stung, the poison just started going in, right? It's about to get worse, right? Sin is the sting that results in, say it, death. Why do we die? We, our words, thoughts, passions, everything about us has a fundamental bent away from God being God. No, I've got this. I'll be God. Thanks very much. We call that sin. Doing that, thinking that way, speaking that way results in death. And the law, God's rules for what's right and wrong, gives sin its power. In other words, once I know what's wrong, so I've told this story before. I was five years old one time when my mom and dad needed to walk next door to talk to the neighbors, went to the neighboring condo, and the last thing, the last words off my dad's lips before he left was, and Gregory, no jumping on mom and dad's bed. The parents and grandparents, the aunts, the uncles, you guys know what happens. If the last thing you said is hovering in the brain of said five-year-old Gregory, and I jumped on mom and dad's bed. Oh, man. I hadn't, it hadn't even really occurred to me. I was like, my parents have all the best ideas, and they're holding out on me. <laughs> this is awesome. And since I hadn't really experimented with lying yet, but I knew I'd get a whipping if mom and dad knew, and I wasn't smart enough to cover my tracks and make the bed, dad, who deals with my three-year-old sister, who was always lying, says, Gregory, did you jump on the bed? I said, no, daddy. And that was the end of the discussion because Gregory never lies. So as I listened to my sister getting my whipping, yeah, tears flowing and I run upstairs and confess. And anyway, all I'm saying is when, when Paul says the law gives sin its power, the rules are what awakens something inside me. I didn't even want to do that until you said I couldn't, Right? 
You shouldn't have even made that a rule because now I want to do it. Verse 57, but thank God he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you hear that? Gives us. You didn't earn it or achieve it. I didn't achieve it. He gives it to us though. So my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Holy Spirit, teach us the word of God today, please. Help us to walk out of here transformed by your beauty, your power, your mercy, and your justice. God, make our minds, our hearts, our words, our actions, things that make you famous in Citrus Heights and to the ends of the earth. God, reach to us today, wherever our need is, and meet that need to show off your power and your goodness. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. And God's people said, amen. amen. So those of you who are type A and like diving into the text, we're gonna do this lightning fast. Four little details about the passage. Grab your pen. Did everybody get sermon notes who want them? Yes? Okay, we need two right here. Three. Okay, we've got a few people that don't have sermon. Okay, now we're, now we're being honest. Bunch of people did not get a bulletin. So if we could work on that. Where's the stack of bulletins? Rock on. Okay, keep that hand up. We've got volunteers coming. Keep that hand up. Thanks, guys. Your first blank when you get your bulletin. Jesus' resurrection proved that the cross worked. He said that in verse 17. I'm not gonna park on this very long. If you're gonna say, I'm going to my cross and I'm going to provide the forgiveness of sins to people there, because I'm God, I am morally perfect, and me going to the cross is sufficient, a payment, to pay for billions and billions and billions of people's sins. Still one over here. If you're gonna say that, but then we crucify you and you just stay in the ground, it's like, well, I guess he wasn't God. Does that make sense? If you kill him, it didn't really matter what he said. Apparently, it wasn't true. In verse 17, he said, well, let's go back with me. Verse 17... And if Christ had not been raised, then your faith is useless and you're still guilty of your sins, right? They're connected. Second little detail about the passage. Death's days are numbered. Is that good news? Very good news. Look at verse 26. We already read this. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Who defeats, who destroys death? You? Me? Yeah, that's ridiculous. Why are we fighting like cats and dogs over healthcare? What do you guys think the HMO plan is in heaven? Right? Doctors are not going to have any work to do. If everything is perfect, everything is whole, everything is healed, right? Death, suffering. There's, there's no room, there's no job for you in heaven. If you're in medical profession, if you're a police officer, you won't have any laws to enforce. Attorneys definitely won't have anything they need to do. <laughs> Oakland Raiders, like all kinds of groups. Greg is shady, that's okay. <laughs> Third, physical death must occur to inherit God's promises for eternity. We already saw that. The seed has to die before something beautiful can come out of it. So the Christian worldview about death is fundamentally backwards from a lot of the way that we are accustomed to thinking. 
We talk about estate planning, oh, you want it to be, and all people talk about is, oh, you want your assets to go to your kids and you don't want the tax man to come get, and we all, we just talk as if money is so important and we talk as if how your kids remember you is all important. But what if God is real, right? Did we ever even stop to ask? Because when the Bible says that the streets uh, of heaven are paved with gold, that's, that's on purpose. What you value so much right now, what you fight and sue each other over, it's asphalt on the other side. So knock it off. All, all of your, cla- your, your scratching and clawing and suing and stealing, knock it off. Because you're gonna be in the presence of Jesus and you're finally gonna have your priorities straight. The beauty of your creator, fully reconciled to you, you're fully reconciled to everyone else. No one's sinning against each other. No one's hurting each other. And physical death is a gateway toward that because our physical bodies come under the curse of sin in Genesis 3. These have to die. We want them to die. In fact, the book of Ecclesiastes, it's either Ecclesiastes or Proverbs, says that if you live long enough, at some point you will wake up and go, ugh, I'm still here. Right? Us young bucks don't feel that, but the word says it. There will be a day where you're like, I am ready for this mortal life to be gone. Fourth detail of the text, God gives victory over death through Jesus. Take a look again at verse 57, the tail end of what we just read. But thank God he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. If Jesus is the Lord over you, he's also your savior. He's the one who washes away sin. Victory is inherited, it is given like a gift. So the actual meat of the sermon is gonna be asking this question. We're gonna get real practical. Okay, Pastor Greg, all this theory, victory over death, what does it look like for me? All right, first is living with peace. The first is living with peace. And no, I do not mean a Zen Buddhism, clear your mind, I'm choosing to disassociate, I'm gonna compartmentalize the rough parts of life. No, 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 no. Christian peace is he walks with me through the valley of the shadow of death. The dark things are absolutely there. It's just that my God is bigger than the dark things. If you think that someone, and this has happened many, many times, if someone's inviting you into a Christianity where everything's fine all of a sudden because you became a Christian, that is utter nonsense. If the leader of the movement got crucified, why do you think it's gonna be a cakewalk for you to follow him? That makes no sense. So here's what living with peace uh, looks like. If you've been with us, you've, you've heard this story recently. This is in John 11. Somebody that Jesus loved very much named Lazarus, a good friend, died, and he's talking with the two sisters who are just distraught. He says to Martha, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. She's giving the good Sunday school answer. She knows the people of God are gonna be resurrected at the end. But Jesus is talking about something more imminent. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. What? Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord, she told him. I have always believed you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. Did you just hear Jesus say his followers weren't gonna die? That's what I heard. 
Now, everybody dies physically. So what was Jesus actually talking about? In fact, he's gonna die physically. He's definitely not talking about physical death. He's coming from the 30,000 foot level as the God man. He's saying there is a death that is way more terrifying than what you're terrified of. And there is a life way more abundant than the life you're pursuing. There are spiritual realities infinitely bigger than the things that you're worried about or that you're pursuing. So let me ask you an important question. Was Jesus at peace in Gethsemane when he's asking the Father, God, is there any other way than going to this cross to redeem humanity? Was Jesus at peace? I have one vote for yes. I have a vote for no back here. I have a yes from Tom. Was he at peace? All the regulars are staying quiet. They're like, it's a trick question. I just know it. I know it. We actually sang it there in that last song or second to last song. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus pours out his scorn on his own cross, pours out his hatred and his rage against it, defying it, mocking it as he goes to it and submits to it because he sees joy on the other side. I'm gonna honor my father. I'm gonna defeat Satan, sin, and death. I'm gonna redeem a rebellious people who are gonna respond in praise and worship and adoration forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Here's another way of saying it. This will be hell on earth and it's worth it. The Bible does not define peace as a lack of war, amongst mere mortals. When the Bible talks about peace, it is asking, are you at peace with God? His father has given him an unbelievable assignment. He has agreed to it. He's taken on flesh. He's lived this perfect life you and I should have lived. And now he's coming to this place where he's gonna die a death that you and I should have died. But he doesn't want us to have to die it. He's gonna substitute himself in the place of everyone who will believe. He wants what he is about to earn. He is about to get victory over so many things. Winston Churchill was wrong 80 years ago after the Battle of Britain. He said, never in the field of human conflict has so much been owed by so many to so few. Because he was talking about less than 100 men who were in these fighters over the south of England trying to fight back Germany. Uh, no, no. One is less than a hundred. Maybe the word human is what makes the quote correct. Because in the field of divine conflict, never has so much been owed by so many to one. When Jesus says, no one can defeat death except me, I'm gonna do it. It's going to cost me a lot. I'm gonna do it. Peace with God is not, my circumstances are great, it's, I know he will walk with me through this. He has a plan that is better than not going through the suffering in the first place. So ask yourself this, and I'm gonna ask myself as well. Am I at peace with the one who is greater than death? 
Or another way of saying it this way, to go back to our World War II analogy, if you knew in advance, if you were the leader of a small country and you knew in advance which side was gonna win, who would you ally yourself with? It doesn't matter your ideology. It doesn't matter if you're fascist. It doesn't matter if you're a free democracy. If you're a little country with a small military and all of the big boys go to war and you knew in advance who's gonna win, you form an alliance with the one who's gonna win. Even if in the middle of these next six years, there's gonna be hell to pay. Even if I'm gonna have a lot of soldiers die, even if it's gonna go poorly for my country at this time or in this way, if I know who's gonna win, we all know what the, uh, the UN Security Commission is, right? the UN Security Council. The five permanent seats are just the ones who won World War II. They basically divvied up planet Earth and said, we're in charge. If you know that the God of the cosmos is going to win the fight against death, whose side do you want to be on? Whose side do you want to be on? That's, that's whose side I want to be on. Now, let's, let's not pretend that doesn't come at a high cost. Every time Jesus opens his mouth, Greg is wrong. Every time Jesus opens his mouth, I have to change and I have to repent and I have to lay things down at God's feet. And it's hard and I don't like it. My pride hates it. But I still have a choice. I absolutely have a choice. Am I at peace or am I at war? The peace that goes deep down, that transcends human understanding? Am I allied with the one who's gonna win this? Your second blank is this. When I ask the question, what does victory over death look like in my life? Living with purpose is another answer. Look again at verse 31. Now let's start at 30. And why should we ourselves risk our lives hour by hour? For I swear, dear brothers and sisters, that I face death daily. This is as certain as my pride in what Christ Jesus our Lord has done in you. And what value was there in fighting wild beasts, those people at Ephesus? So fighting wild beasts is, um, it's understatement. He's talking about Christians getting thrown out to the animals in a gladiatorial environment. Um, so I know that everyone's got their own distinct family culture of whether or not you can talk about religion around the Thanksgiving table, Right? <laughs> these last five years or so, uncle so-and-so brings up his, his belief in Buddhism and you're like, oh, thank God, we're talking about religion instead of politics. Whew. You know, it's gonna be okay. Yeah, yeah, Buddhism, tell me more about that. Um, everybody's got their own office culture, whether or not you're talking about faith-related things, religious-related things. None of us have thought my next door neighbor, if I decide that I believe what he believes, the government will come for me. Unless you're here from a country where the gospel is dangerous, you've probably never had to consider that. Paul's not joking when he says that. Why on earth would you participate in a faith that could absolutely get you killed and it could get you killed the same day that you convert? 
Why would you participate in that? How does he keep going? How is he writing these pastoral letters to churches all over the Mediterranean, encouraging them, going, hey, stay in the good fight. We do not fight against flesh and blood, but we're fighting against dark things. We're fighting against the enemies of God. Satan, sin, and death are defeated foes, and we're participating in the victory. Keep going, keep going, keep going. What's keeping Paul going? I think I know the secret. Paul can die at any point and feel good about what he worked toward. Right? What would you give for that kind of confidence? So we know what it's like to have one day where you checked a lot of boxes, you crushed it, you get to the end of the day, you're tired, your head hits the pillow and you're like, oh, nailed it. I had a really good productive day. What makes it productive? What makes it effective? What makes it worthwhile? If you asked yourself at the very end of the day, if I died in my sleep tonight, would I have felt good about how I invested this day? Right? Paul, every single day, is living a life, gospel first, gospel last. People need to know the good news that Jesus Christ died on a cross to wash away sin. Paul's living his life on purpose. The saints in Corinth that he's writing to, they're living their life on purpose. They're not sinless. Every one of these people is broken and messed up in their own way. There was a man who was dying of cancer. He was getting toward the end where there was nothing more that the doctors could do. And so without his wife's knowledge, he went to a florist and wrote a large check where she was to receive a bouquet of flowers on their anniversary every year for the rest of her life. And he had written, I don't, rem- I don't remember how old they were, but he had written like 30 notes to her and one, no- one little love note was to be given with the flowers each year. Do you think that it gave him joy to walk into that flower shop and place that order? Could he look into the future and imagine the result? That day, he made an investment in something that he wasn't get to get to see it with his own eyes. In fact, it might have been the first time in his whole life where he bought flowers to be delivered to his wife at some future point. He made an investment in something that was going to outlive him. He could die and nothing was going to change the fact that there was a florist with a ledger of prepaid and this is what we have to, this obligation that we, what we obligated ourselves to according to this dollar amount. So let's ask ourselves the question, what's one thing I should do today that has eternal purpose? What's one thing I should do? If, my, if I think my 401k has eternal purpose, I apparently wasn't paying attention in 2008. Right? There are things that last and there are things that don't last. 
There are things that last. There are things that don't last. If Jesus Christ gained victory over death, and if he offers that victory to me, part and parcel of being a child of God, then my death is not the end. It is a transition toward a place. I mean, gosh, just the gospel of Matthew, Jesus says many, many times of what it's like to make investments into eternity. Anything that honors God, by the way, if you serve people, you're, you're gonna be honoring God. So that's, there's low-hanging fruit. <laughs> Jesus said over and over again, if you love and serve people who can't pay you back, that's way better. If you have two coats, you have one too many. If a soldier forces you to carry his gear for a mile, carry it for an extra mile. What does mercy look like? Oh, uh, one guy who's a part of a hated race of the other guy, he gets beat up and yet he helps him anyway. Different religion, different ethnicity, different politics, helps him anyway. And yet, what did Jesus say over and over to the religious elite about all these good deeds if you don't actually aren't connected to God? Jesus said to the pastors, you guys are whitewashed tombs. The outside of the tomb looks so good, but the inside is filled with dead men's bones. And that's Jesus' warning to you. That's Jesus' warning to me. All these ways that we honor God and honor people, if we are not actually allied with God, we're just pulling a muscle, patting ourselves on the back. I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I'm a good person. And you think that's self-righteous, pompous now? Wait until you close your eyes on this side of eternity and you stand in front of the one that lightning and thunder pour out of his presence and he has scars for all eternity in his wrists and in his feet and in his side and you try to stand in front of him and say, I'm a good person. Our brother Charles Spurgeon was preaching 150 years ago in London and he said, why do you keep asking why bad things happen to good people? That only happened once. And he volunteered. I can only invest as it relates to treating others well. I can only sow seed, to use the words of gladiator that echoes in eternity. I can only make those investments if I'm investing with my father. Does anybody here take a large sum of money and invest it with your enemy, hoping you'll get a nice return? Yeah, it, it makes no sense to invest with your enemy, okay? Living with purpose is one thing that the Christian is offered if death is simply a transitional step. Last, living with confidence. Look again at verse one. Let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then and you still stand firm in it. Verses two through four, look at this. It is this good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you, unless, of course, you believed something that was never true in the first place. I passed on to you what was most important. You ready? Here it is, and it's been passed on to me. First, Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. Second, he was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. These guys don't just believe it, they stand in it. They've planted themselves This is what's true. This is who I am. I'm walking in this. I'm staying here. 
I'm not going anywhere else. No one else loved me while I was unlovable. No one else offered freely to wash away my sins. No one else offered to defeat death. I'm staying here. That could be called stubbornness. That could be called bigotry. Oh, you're so closed-minded to other things. And I keep telling you guys, I'm happy to explore other religions if somebody can tell me that they washed away my sin. I'm totally open-minded. What I'm closed-minded about is I don't want to pay for my own sin. I'm really closed-minded about that. That doesn't sound fun. Doesn't sound like a good holiday. Because Gregory, I don't know about you guys, you guys are probably fine. I've done a lot, a lot of cosmic treason. I've done a lot of it. A lot of selfishness. A lot of money will make me happy if I just get more of it. A lot of I'm gonna put my trust in my career and not the most high. A lot of, oh, I'm a good person. I know you guys don't do any of those things, but I do that stuff a lot. I need a savior. Period. So I would preach this one to an empty room because if they're, you know, if I'm here, I need to hear it. I love the confidence that somebody grabbed death by the neck, took it out to the back 40 and made it pick, pick, made it pick its switch. Or worse yet, Jesus comes back. Wait, Jesus, what are you up to? Washing blood off of his hands. Oh, you know, had to take care of something. Jesus, did you just kill somebody? I didn't know you were shady. Oh, I'm not shady. I killed death so that you could live. We all remember, I hope, in math class, two negatives makes a positive. What happens when you kill death? What happens? Life. Life is all that's left because death has died. Two young men are in college and they're making foolish decisions on a Friday night. And so you, before they know it, they are in, in a brand new dorm room that does not have any Ikea decorations, has none of their textbooks, and they're going, oh my goodness, we are in trouble. One of the young men says, I know what I'm going to do, I'm going to call my dad. And his friend goes, dude, you can't call your dad, your dad is going to kill you. And the first young man says, oh, I know he's going to kill me. But before he does, he's going to get me out of here. That's how a loving father is. My loving father really does care about the decisions I'm making, the future that I'm choosing. My loving father knows how to save me. Time to ask ourselves a question, and it's a big one, and it's important. Band, if you'd come up to help us respond, we're going to meditate on this question. Is the God of the Bible my father? Yes, I fear him. He's going to bend me over his knee from time to time. Oh, but he'll save me. Fathers are the ones that, in their love and in their wisdom, they decide. What is too big of a challenge for my child and I'm gonna protect them from it? What is a big enough challenge that I'm gonna let them twist in the wind a little bit, right? 
if God is your enemy, you don't want to reach out to him. (laughs) Having chosen wrongdoing, having chosen rebellion, self-reliance, and show up at heaven like everything's going to be fine. This wasn't in the notes, but I think it's critical perhaps for me to say it this way. There's nothing more damnable in the human experience than if we were to show up to heaven saying, I'm a good person on my own, and I'm standing before the Father who has given his own son to wash away my sins. You and I have the opportunity to stand in front of the Father and totally invalidate the sacrifice that he made. And if, if you gave up your child to save somebody's life and they responded that way, you'd be furious. Any of us would be. So let's ask ourselves the question, is he my enemy? Is he my father? Those are the two options because the Bible reveals that friendship with God behaves like adoption. He becomes the father of many children. The band's gonna play and we're gonna have a few moments to think, maybe journal some notes in the margin of your Bible, talk to God for a moment. This is a big deal. This is a real big deal. If Jesus is offering victory over death to anyone who wants it, that means I also have the freedom to choose the other way. I'm, no thanks, I'm, I'm good on my own. I, I'm not interested. This is the choice before us every day. This is the choice. We gotta decide what we think about this Jesus. Was he a cool historical figure that got swept up with the wrong crowd and got accidentally crucified? Oh, that's so sad. Or did he empty his own tomb? It's one of those two. It's definitely one of those two. So let's spend some time to think and to pray. I'll come back up in just a moment to share a couple of things going on in the life of our church family.
If you're new, here's what I want you to consider doing today. You put your faith for the first time in a bloodied cross to wash away your sin. And then you declare to your friends and family, coworkers, your new allegiance next week when we baptize out here in the quad. Baptism is a symbol. We lower you into the water and it's a symbol of the old self dying and we raise you out of the water showing there's a new self born in Jesus. If you believe that and you've never believed it before, the Bible teaches that your first step of obedience is to proclaim it to the world through this symbol. So I want you to come and talk to me here after the service and I'll make sure to connect you with Pastor Conrad who's handling baptisms next week. If you already love Jesus, please walk out of here considering what would I do today? How would I invest my life if he really is my father, if this eternity is exactly what God described it as, how would I invest my life? Because death can't stop me anymore. Death is a defeated foe. And my decisions will echo and reverberate beyond this. Amen? All right. A couple of things before we go. Next week, if I tell you, you're not even going to want to come. Should I tell you what I'm preaching on next week? We're going to let this one hang in suspense. We're talking about victory. Hey, there you go. See, I told you. We're talking about victory next week. It's going to be good. And we're going to celebrate, as I just said, at the end of the service. We're going to end the service a little bit early in Sunday school, Kids Adventure, a little bit early. We're going to gather in the quad and celebrate a few people have a new life in Christ, and maybe that's you and you need to join in. So like I said, come talk to me. Um, I felt like there was one other thing. What else am I missing? Hmm? Happy Easter, that's right. Uh, take Pastor Greg to Leatherby's. What was it? I forget, it was something. It was something. But yeah, so those of you, if you weren't here in October, when we, when we baptize, we have a good time. We have a really good time. So I'll see you guys next week for that. Um, an encouragement to, um, gosh, I, I, always, I always talk a little bit longer than I should and say a little bit more and then get a little more rude than I should. Christians get a little bit cynical about people who only show up at Christmas and Easter. Here's what I wanna say. If the tomb of Jesus Christ, if he did not empty it, you don't even need to come at Christmas and Easter. You don't have to come at all, serious. There's no judgment. Paul said it. This is a colossal joke if it's wrong. So that's why my encouragement to you is to decide. That's my encouragement to you to decide. I would love it if you decided Jesus was God and you're gonna follow him with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so you connect into this church family and help, help, let us help you on your spiritual journey. I wanna also let you know, if you do not believe this, but you're here because you're kicking the tires of the Christian faith, you do not have to believe the same as us to belong. We love you no matter what you believe. We'll open the Bible. We'll explain as best we can. We love you irrespective of what you believe, okay? And if there's a Christian getting upset over it, I'll kick him, okay? Lots of us have lots and lots of questions that we wrestle with and struggle with, and then maybe one day we see Jesus differently. Talk to me, Rob. I don't know enough about it yet to announce it, so... 
I will say the start of the NFL season is only four and a half months away. Hallelujah! Um, anything else? No? If there are any able-bodied volunteers, when you guys are done socializing, you help put away tables and chairs from the quad, that would be great. Love you guys. Have a great... Oh. Voting results? Huh? Voting results? I don't know. Uh, we passed the budget. I know, it was a shocker. Yeah, we passed the budget. Okay, love you guys. Have a great week.